to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. Well, my friends, the Democrats have done it again. In a press conference last week, senior Democrats from Congress made it clear that if it comes down to choosing between Iran and the Trump administration, well, guess what? They're siding with Iran, with the Islamists, with the government that shouts, Death to America! Welcome to News Magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. Well, it seems that the Democrats will say almost anything if it means trashing our president. This time, they went after President Trump for the strong position he took following Iran's threat against the United States. It happened last week when Senator Richard Durbin, a Democrat representing the once great state of Illinois, along with several other leading Democrats, insisted that the administration was putting America on a collision course for war against Iran. Durbin said, make no mistake, this president and his administration are itching for a confrontation with Iran. Look what they've done, he said. They walked away from the agreement we had with our allies to stop the development of nuclear weapons in Iran. And then he declared the Iran Guard is a terrorist organization. Then he increased the sanctions. He's talking about the president. Then he increased the sanctions on that country. And then they leaked to the press that they have a plan to form an invasionary force of 120,000 American military. Unquote. And finally, he accused President Trump of walking away from the agreement, which of course he did. And thank God for that. Senator Durbin, what do you mean we walked away from the agreement to stop the development of nuclear weapons in Iran? That agreement did just the opposite. It guaranteed Iran's continued nuclear development, and of course we walked away. We should never have signed it in the first place. It was a terrible deal. And the IRGC, the one you called the Iran Guard, is a terrorist organization. The president just called it what it is. It's the equivalent of the old Nazi SS, reporting directly to the Ayatollah and carrying out horrific crimes against the civilians he thinks are a threat to his power. And by the way, that invasionary force you talk about is a deterrent force that hopefully will prevent the war you are so aggressively blaming our president for wanting to start. Not surprisingly, you disgrace yourself and your party, again, with your ridiculous and outrageous accusation. As far as Iran is concerned, there are several issues. At the end of April, the White House announced the end of waivers for U.S. sanctions on imports of Iranian oil. That's for countries around the world. Prior to that, seven countries had been given waivers so that they would, in, a, in the words of Secretary Mike Pompeo, quote, give our allies and partners a chance to wean themselves off of Iranian oil and to assure a well-supplied oil market, unquote. So Iran now has difficulty selling its oil on the open market. 
This has created a crisis for Iran, and estimates are that before these remaining waivers were lifted, Iran had already lost $10 billion, or 25% of its prior revenues. That final step, removing the seven remaining waivers, has put great economic pressure on a regime that, in Durbin's words, are itching for a confrontation with us. In fact, it has been reported that the sanctions have resulted in Iran pulling back on its funding of Hezbollah in Syria and Lebanon and Hamas in Gaza. And let me tell you, that's a good thing. Iranian officials have now set a July 7 deadline for Europe to come up with new terms for a new deal. Or it has threatened to enhance their own nuclear enrichment program to near weapons grade levels. Now, we suspected that they were planning to do this anyway, so, you know, that's not such a big deal. But it's only a big deal if they do it, and that's what we're trying to prevent. Iranian proxies, in the meantime, most likely facilitated by the IRGC, yeah, the one you think is unfairly accused of being a terrorist organization, that one, attacked four oil tankers that were harbored in the port of Fujairah in the United Arab Emirates. They just blew holes in the sides of them with explosives for them. And, of course, Iran has continually threatened both the United States and Israel, as well as the rest of the oil exporting and importing world, by threatening to close the Strait of Hormuz, which links the Persian Gulf with the Arabian Sea and the Gulf of Oman. The commander of the naval forces of Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, the IRGC, announced that Iran would close the waterway to all traffic if it were prevented from using the Strait of Hormoz. He was essentially threatening to close one of the world's most critical choke points in the supply of oil to the world, if its oil business were interfered with. So in the face of this threat, it is not surprising that the president moved some of our naval assets from the 6th Fleet in the Mediterranean to the 5th Fleet in the Persian Gulf. He was making a statement directly to Tehran that its threat against the United States and Israel will not go unnoticed. He deployed two battle groups to the region as a result of the threats from Iran. This is a warning to Iran not to start a war. So, Dick Durbin, go back and do your homework, won't you? My point is that this verbal duel between Tehran and Washington is, at the moment, nothing more than that, a verbal duel and a relatively mild rattling of sabers. The president was drawing a red line that was a warning to Iran. If Iran does nothing, then nothing more will happen. But Trump is not Obama. That red line will stand, and if it is crossed, if Iran engages against the United States or Israel, then the U.S. will respond with appropriate force. Unlike Obama, Trump will not ignore a blatant attempt to attack U.S. assets or allies in the Middle East. Anyone who does not understand that these tactics are necessary for our own security has no understanding of the situation, and frankly, shouldn't be in Congress. Here's a piece of news that you may have missed this week. 
It really, it was hardly covered on the mainstream media. But for almost a week, Israel was on fire, literally. Over a thousand separate fires that started within hours of each other raged through the country for more than four days and firefighters from all over the region came to help put them out. In the end, they burned nearly 2,000 acres and destroyed dozens of homes around the country. Now, before you jump to conclusions, Israel has been experiencing a brutal heat wave, creating a tinder dry environment that was just right for wildfires. So the fires started early in the week, and by Thursday, to add insult to injury, the temperatures in the normally moderate center of the country had reached 104 degrees in Jerusalem and 111 degrees in Tel Aviv, which is on the coast of the Mediterranean. The normal high for there is about 84 degrees in late May. A few of the fires were started by electrical issues, faulty cables, equipment failures, and so forth. And some were started by the embers of campfires that were left by careless Israelis who had been celebrating the Jewish holiday called Lagba Omer. This is a holiday which is traditionally observed around a bonfire. And small fires that are started by these bonfires are not unusual during this holiday. And then there were the Arab terrorists who took advantage of the dry conditions and set fires intentionally as a part of their, quote, resistance, unquote, also known as jihad. This would be part of their grand scheme to destroy the Jewish state by fire if necessary and claim the country for their own. Their activities in the north were duplicated in the south by the launching of several fire balloons from Gaza that set fires to fields and forests in Israel near the Gaza Strip. In the Israeli village of Mevomodaim in the center of the country, 40 out of the 50 homes there were completely destroyed by fire. 3,500 people around the country were evacuated and only allowed to return to what was left of their communities on Friday after most of the fires were put out. From the beginning, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu put out a call for help, and help came from some unexpected sources. Cyprus, Croatia, and Italy all sent firefighting planes, and Egypt sent two helicopters. By Friday, most of the fires had been put out, and on Saturday night, the Israel Fire and Rescue Services declared the end of the fire emergency. And the temperature also cooperated by falling. By Saturday afternoon, the temperature in Tel Aviv was back to 82 degrees. Now, if it would only rain, but of course, this is Israel. It rarely rains during the summertime. Amazingly, in all of this, there were no reports of casualties, only minor injuries, such as smoke inhalation. And yet, as bad as this inferno was, it was mild, if you can believe that, compared to the wildfires of 2016, which came after two months of drought. It took eight days to put out 1,773 fires. They damaged or destroyed more than 700 homes and burned 32,000 acres of precious woodland. It breaks my heart. 
The most massive fire in 2016 was in and around the coastal city of Haifa, where 77 apartment buildings were destroyed, leaving 1,600 people homeless. That fire took four days to extinguish, and 44 people died in the flames. Many of the fires that year were known to be acts of arson by Palestinians engaging in jihad by fire. In a review of the origins of 80 of those fires, it was found that 77 of them were the result of arson by Palestinians, in other words, terrorism. Jihad by fire is not a new phenomenon. In fact, during the 2016 fires, members of Fatah, who set fires in the Jerusalem Corridor, which is the road that runs between Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, and it's now called Highway 1, they made a video in which they showed how they started the fires that caused so much havoc in Israel that year. I have written about the incendiary balloons that have become the hallmark of the Gazans. They fill the balloon with helium, then tie a flaming rag to the string and release it near the border. Prevailing winds from the Mediterranean carry the balloon across the border into Israeli forests, nature preserves, and fields. Some balloons even carry explosive devices, and some have messages in Hebrew on them or the image of the Palestinian flag. Last year, the fire started by these devices destroyed some 9,000 acres of field and forest, killed thousands of wildlife creatures, some very rare, and were very difficult to intercept. Palestinians are not known for their kindness to animals, and one effort was made to send a rare falcon across the border with a flaming rag tied to its feet. It died, of course, after it got caught in a tree and burned to death. This year is not the first or the last to see terrorist fires in the Holy Land. In the next part of the program, I'll talk about the threat of terrorism here in the United States, and maybe there are things we can learn from the Israelis. Today, the fires in Israel are out, and the people have returned to rebuild their homes, replant their forests, and continue to live in the land of Israel. This is what Israelis do. They come home, they rebuild, and they just keep going. Now, last week in our program, we discussed the lost art of civil discourse, and we talked about how we could possibly change the pattern that we're now locked in where in Washington, in Congress, the left will not speak to the right. The right and the left cannot sit together and negotiate and everything is at a stalemate. Nothing is getting done. So I asked you to think about this problem and think about what could be done to maybe change things, make them better. And I asked you to send me emails and I asked you to to make them creative and to let's see what kind of ideas you might have. Well, I got an email. Thank you all for your emails, by the way. But I got an email from Jim that I'd like to share with you because he has a very interesting idea. So here's his idea. Start by rearranging the seating plans in both chambers of Congress. Have no representative or senator seated adjacent to a member of the same party. They may just be forced to converse and listen to each other. 
Destroy the artificial aisle between that separates them. Talking and listening as individuals rather than factions aligned against each other is an age-old negotiation and team-building tactic." Unquote. That's an awesome idea. Imagine no Democrat sitting next to any other Democrat but surrounded by Republicans and every Republican surrounded by Democrats. What happens when you do that? You have to talk to the person next to you as a person, not just as a, a member of uh, the opposition. So I love that idea. Jim, thank you so much for writing and sharing that with us. Now, another thing we talked about last week was um, we were talking about education and how we have failed, how we have failed our children in providing the education that we have where they don't learn literature and they don't learn history and they don't learn civics, but they do learn gender identity and they learn that if they show up, they get a prize and so forth. We have failed them completely. So Michelle wrote and she said, we definitely have failed in allowing the socialist liberal left to infiltrate our schools. I know many teachers here in Southern California who are devastated by this new health curriculum. Very sad times. I agree, Michelle, and I thank you for writing because it's very important that we recognize what's going on in our schools and what it's doing to our kids. They will not have command of English. They will not have command of history. They will not know history. And they will be maybe in the bunch that wants to rewrite history. You don't need to learn from anything. If it was bad, get rid of it. Well, that's not it. That's not how civilization survives. It's not how it grows and changes for the better. It's not how it improves itself by learning from history. So, Michelle, you're right. The health curriculum that is in Southern California is horrendous and it needs to be changed. We'll talk more about these issues as time goes on, but thank you both Jim and Michelle for contributing to the program today. Love it. For the rest of you who are listening now, please feel free to send an email with your comments about anything that we discuss. I'd love to hear from you. Send your email to Ilana, I-L-A-N-A, Ilana at americaoutloud.com. I'll look forward to hearing from you. So now we're going to take a short break. Don't go away. We'll be right back. The Out Loud Perspective awaits you in life, love, politics, a healthy lifestyle, your faith, personal development, and living an out loud life on AmericaOutloud.com. Glitch your news and entertainment network where you can listen 24-7 on our free apps on both Android and Apple. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. Most of us know that Hamas is known in the Middle East for its connections to violent terrorism, mostly against Israel and Israelis. But how many of us know that Hamas also has a presence here in the United States and that that presence is growing stronger every year? Hamas in the United States doesn't wage its wars against the West through violence, but rather through what it calls civilization jihad. 
It's not easy for any of us who suggest that Hamas is alive and well and living in Washington, D.C. Anyone who challenges the myth that Hamas does not exist in the U.S. faces mockery and is branded with the epithet of Islamophobe. That's nonsense, of course, because there is a large and growing body of evidence that Hamas is very active in the United States, although under another name. And just because you may criticize a Muslim does not make you an Islamophobe. In the quest for truth, exposing the real and current threat that Hamas presents to America is very difficult at best. Even establishing the very existence of Hamas in America is problematical because in the United States, Hamas is a ghost organization. It hides behind well-guarded veils of secrecy and it's protected by those considered respectable representatives of the Muslim American community. The presence of Hamas in America is therefore generally overlooked by the average American who would no doubt be astonished to know just how deeply the organization has infiltrated the institutions of America's political, social, and government infrastructure. But first, in order to tell the story, I need to give you a little history. Hamas was founded in Gaza in 1987 by the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood, which needed an organization that would carry out terrorist acts against Israel, but would give the Brotherhood some deniability. Hamas in the Middle East has been a practitioner of violent Islamic terrorism for many years. Its ferocious crusade against Israel has been the cause of thousands of deaths on both sides. But in the U.S., the Hamas agenda is very different. Hamas's connection with the Muslim Brotherhood was clear from the outset. The Hamas charter states very clearly, and I quote, The Islamic resistance movement that's Hamas, is one of the wings of the Muslim Brotherhood in Palestine." Unquote. In the same year that Hamas was founded in Gaza, the Brotherhood opened Hamas's operations in the United States for the express purpose of raising money for its operations in Gaza. In other words, it was raising money here in the U.S., sending it back through a variety of financial vehicles in order to support its terrorist activities against Israel. In one of its first official documents it, that was written in 1991, it was discovered in 2004, and it has always been denied as a document of any importance. Quote, Understanding the role of the Muslim brother in North America. The process of settlement is a civilization jihadist process with all that the word means. The Ikhwan, which is the Arabic name for the brotherhood, must understand that their work in America is a kind of grand jihad in eliminating and destroying the Western civilization from within and sabotaging its miserable house by their hands and the hands of the believers so that it is eliminated and Allah's religion is made victorious over all religions. Unquote. That's heavy. It says very clearly what their purpose is, and that is to take over the civilization that is America and make it an Islamic country. In order to hide its activities in the United States, Hamas first founded and then hid beneath and behind a complex network of organizations, including legitimate businesses, 
not-for-profit organizations, foundations, and community organizations. And at, by now, there must be over a hundred of them. In 1993, that was the same year that the Oslo Accords were signed in an effort to make peace between the Palestinians and Israel, another meeting, a secret meeting, was held in Philadelphia to discuss what would happen next. It was attended by 24 Hamas and Muslim Brotherhood leaders in the U.S. to discuss how they could move the Hamas agenda forward and undermine the Oslo Peace Accord. They were talking about the Hamas agenda in America, but the Oslo Peace Accords were important because Hamas had vowed from the very beginning never to accept peace with Israel. How do we know what happened in that meeting? because the FBI had gotten a tip about it and had pre-wired the room to record everything. The transcripts of the meeting were later released to the public. Among those attending that meeting was Abu Marzouk, who was then head of the Hamas Political Bureau in America. Two years later, he was listed by the United States Treasury Department as a specially designated terrorist. He left the country. Today, he lives in Doha, a multi-millionaire living the good life from money earned through terrorism. Nice guy. Also attending the meeting was Nihad Awad, who at the time was director of public relations for an organization called the Islamic Association for Palestine, or IAP. If his name, Nihad Awad, is familiar to you, it should be. But hold on for just a minute. The IAP was one of the many organizations founded by the Muslim Brotherhood in America. It was one of many organizations that were founded to create a complex web of interlocking organizations that were nearly impossible to unravel, and that is how they hid or camouflaged their activities. Among the various things discussed at that meeting in Philadelphia included how to hide the activities of the Islamic Society of North America, known as ISNA, from the government, and how to morph the IAP, which was now under investigation for money laundering funds for Hamas, and change it into a new organization. They also discussed what the role of the new organization would be. It was only eight months later that the new organization was revealed. It was the Council of Islamic American Relations, best known today as CARE. And Nihad Awad, the man whose name I thought you might know, who had been one of the leaders attending the meeting, became its executive director, a position he holds today. Lest you be tempted to be fooled by his dignified demeanor and his manners, his presence at the Philadelphia meeting identifies him as a prominent figure in the Hamas Muslim Brotherhood Network. And the fact that he is still executive director of CARE should give you a good idea of where his background, his leanings, and connections are. In short, CARE became the face of the Brotherhood and a fundraiser and a screen for Hamas, which it champions and protects. And that brings me to the subject of civilization jihad, which is what CARE practices every day of the week, every week of the year. The goal of civilization jihad as practiced by CARE and the hundred or so other Muslim Brotherhood organizations in America 
is to infiltrate the organizations and society of America at every level and to promote a Muslim agenda in every organization they join. This means infiltrating wherever it is possible, from local school boards to Congress, from the PTA to advisor to the president. John Guandolo, a former FBI agent, said the most prominent Islamic organizations in the United States are all controlled by the Muslim Brotherhood. And so they are. There are a lot of them. And they are active at every level of American society. Now, the ultimate aim is to bring Islam to America. A former Muslim leader, Abdurrahman Alamudi, who later went to prison for his role in a terrorist plot, he once told a crowd in Chicago, quote, It may be in a year, or it may be in a hundred years, but this will be a Muslim country. Unquote. It is difficult for Western intelligence analysts and law enforcement professionals to even recognize, much less understand, the intricacies of the jihadi mindset that drives those who support Islamic terrorism. Because fundraising for Hamas, for example, is illegal, and recruitment of supporters for jihad as they practice it lies in gray, poorly defined layers of, of local, state, and federal law, the deviously orchestrated secret operations that Hamas supporters employ to hide their activities has been extraordinarily successful. They both hide and display their ideology. It's interesting. By concealing it from authorities and displaying it to their followers, they present a bewildering array of messages that are difficult for law enforcement to understand. They are therefore too often overlooked and ignored. On its website, CARE claims to be the NAACP for Muslim Americans. But given its connections and its underlying hidden links to Hamas and the Muslim Brotherhood, one can guess that its true intentions are more closely aligned with terrorism than with civil rights. In practical terms, there are a number of paths that civilization jihad takes. The first and most obvious, and frankly the most easy to ignore, is infiltration. We are an inclusive society, and at the moment we get our feel-goods by being politically correct and believing that everyone has goodness inside, if only it were true. But then, of course, we have MS-13 and 9-11 and human traffickers and child predators and terrorists. I can't think of a single nice thing to say about any of them. And we want to be open-minded about Muslims in our community, and up to a point we should be. But when the mission of a Muslim activist is to undermine the goodness of the nation that we love, to destroy the fabric of our society and replace it with their own, then we should be having a problem with that, and we should be worried. There are so many ways in which the insidiousness of civilization jihad impacts us without our realizing it, because they use our best instincts against us. For example, interfaith outreach, which can be complemented by pro-Muslim programs in public schools, is often used as a tool to reach out for converts. Under the guise of neighborliness, we suddenly find the persuasiveness of the message to be far stronger than we expected. And rather than coexisting in friendship, we become targets for conversion. 
Likewise, when our children come home from school asking, Mommy, why aren't we Muslim? It should be ringing all kinds of alarm bells. Then there is jihad by lawfare. When a permit for a mosque in a residential community is denied. When a civil judgment goes the wrong way. When a perceived slight turns into Islamophobia. It all ends up in the courts. And that becomes a platform for using our laws against us or demanding Islamic law in lieu of American law. And then there is Hijra, or mass migration, masquerading as refugee resettlement, or asylum. Huge numbers of Muslims enter the country, come together in a community, and develop their own culture. So instead of integrating into American culture, becoming Americans, as people have done for generations in this country, they set up their own little community. It's an Islamic community, and it holds Islamic law above American law and Islamic customs above American customs. There is no integration. And those are just a few examples of how civilization jihad works. Geert Wilders, a Dutch parliamentarian, said it succinctly. He said, Islam doesn't come just in the form of Islamic terrorism by suicide bombers trying to wreak havoc in our cities. More often, it comes in the form of gradual and incremental transformation of our societies and legal systems, or what is termed Islamization of our democratic societies by the vast growing numbers of Muslim immigrants who are importing Islam into our way of life, unquote. He might as well have added that not only are they importing it, but they are inserting it and changing the culture of our nation forever. So what does this mean for America? Hamas's influence at colleges and universities across the country is open and it's loud. Acts of anti-Israel activism as well as open and virulent anti-Semitism have skyrocketed on campuses all across the United States. Pro-Palestinian groups sponsor anti-Israel events, disrupt Israeli and pro-Israeli speakers with heckling, and sometimes they bar the entrance to would-be attendees and even force the cancellation of pro-Israel events with threats of violence. Their view of First Amendment rights applies only to themselves and to others who share their political views. Those who disagree or do not share their point of view are not granted the same freedom of speech. Prominent among the groups sponsoring these disruptive and divisive activities are American Muslims for Palestine, AMP, and Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions, BDS, both funded, directly or indirectly, by Hamas, as well as by left-wing progressive groups like Change.org, George Soros' Open Society Foundation, and the New Israel Fund. The Muslim population in our country is still in the single digits, but that should not fool any of us because it doesn't matter if we think they can change our country. What matters is if they think they can, they will do everything possible to make it happen. And that can cause a great deal of heartache and damage to the soul of our nation. We have already seen it. Our first Muslim congressman was Keith Ellison. He came into Congress 
kept a reasonably low profile, then moved on to run for attorney general of his state, Minnesota. That was a race he won. And who replaced him? Ilhan Omar, a young woman who keeps a much higher profile, who is free with her anti-Semitic, anti-Israel barbs, and who has the rest of Congress so scared of her Muslimhood that they refuse to censure her or remove her from the Foreign Affairs Committee where she surely does not belong. Ilhan Omar and her sister in Islam, Rashida Tlaib, are also closely connected to CARE and the Muslim Brotherhood. Omar was a speaker at the recent CARE convention where she infamously said about 9-11, quote, some people did something, unquote, and then claimed that CARE was founded after 9-11 to meet the needs of Muslim Americans who were now being targeted. Of course, we know that CARE was founded in 1994 and she needs to do her homework, but her insidious words and the brashness with which she breaks through all the traditional barriers does not speak well for the future of the Congress she continues to terrorize. She is a pawn of the Muslim Brotherhood through CARE and is apparently a fast learner. She is an example of the most dangerous kind of infiltration because she is no longer hiding. She has arrived and she is knocking on our door. If you are interested in this subject, my book, Hamas Care and the Muslim Brotherhood, The Plot to Destroy America, it's available in the America Out Loud bookstore. You can get it through Amazon also. It will give you much more detailed information about the real and present dangers facing us as a direct result of the activist Muslim movement and our own pathetic political correctness that are keeping us immobilized. It's time to wake up, my friends. And with that thought, I will take a short break and be right back. I'm going to ask you to go to thewoundedblue.org. That's www.thewoundedblue.org. That is the website for the organization that is the National Association for um, Injured and Disabled Police Officers. It is a support organization for these men and women who have given so much in the line of duty. We desperately need your help to raise money to uh, get this this movement going. And uh, if you are a GoFundMe-er, go to GoFundMe, look up The Wounded Blue, and you can give there as well. But check it out, please, and also check out our film, The Wounded Blue, on Amazon.com. in the world has happened to California. It used to be the place everyone wanted to go to. It used to be the place everyone wanted to live in. The state that everyone wanted to come from. Its cities were magnets for people from all over the country and all over the world. But not anymore. No, oh, no. California, it ain't what it used to be. Today, California has 130,000 homeless people living on the sidewalks of the state's once most beautiful cities. Nearly 7,000 of these homeless people are family households. And the number also includes almost 11,000 veterans. California accounts for almost half the country's unsheltered population 
its homeless population is more than five times that of the second highest, which is Texas. How is this even possible? California, the eighth richest state in the country, has a lot of explaining to do. So let's take a look at what has happened. Now California is the sanctuary city that honors its conservatively estimated two plus million illegal immigrants more than its 40 million citizens, who, by the way, don't seem to mind. They elected Gavin Newsom to be their 40th governor, and he is carrying on the old California liberal progressive traditions. To this conservative, it is astonishing that so many people have gotten it so wrong. Okay, let's take, let's take San Francisco's new mayor, London Breed, for example. She has a new idea. It's really so bizarre that I can hardly believe it. She called on the homeless to take more pride in their city and not to desecrate it. The city spent $65 million on street cleaning last year and plans to add nearly $13 million next year. She said, this mayor, London Breed, quote, we have to make sure people who live there, sadly people who are homeless here, that they are also held accountable for taking care of our streets. This is our home. Really? I'll bet she has a pretty nice home to go back to at night. It's easy to tell a homeless person to take pride in his little piece of sidewalk. It's also stupid and brutally unkind. In San Francisco's main library, there are new denizens of the stacks, the homeless, who come in to get out of the rain, to read a book, to just sit in a dry chair and relax. In fact, this is becoming a new phenomenon in libraries all across the country. It's difficult to understand how it's even possible that in what is probably one of the richest countries in the world, so many people are living on the streets and so little attention is being paid to their welfare. So in California, one of the most progressive states in the country, where the super rich celebrities are campaigning for socialism and telling us how we should live, nobody is taking care of the homeless. And homelessness in the Golden State is surging. So is disease. And parts of the state are becoming no-go zones because they have been taken over by the homeless who camp out on the sidewalks in the midst of discarded hypodermic needles and human waste and the rats. Typhus is rampant, and believe it or not, so is plague. Homelessness isn't just a California problem. It's a national problem, and it's not new. It has been a problem for as long as we've had cities with the very rich and the very poor. But until recently, there were shelters where the homeless could go and get a meal and a bed for the night. And homeless camps, there were those too under the highways and in the alleys. But today there are just too many of the homeless and they're being tolerated rather than helped. You know, I grew up in New York City, and I never saw so many people living more or less permanently on the sidewalks, 
on main streets in the major cities, living in the kind of squalor that is so deep that it is likely going to kill many of them. Because with the squalor come rats, and with the rats come fleas, and with the fleas come disease. The problem was recently highlighted by a shocking NBC Bay Area investigation. Once it got on the air, it went viral. The report identified a 153-block survey of downtown San Francisco. What it discovered was garbage on every block, 100 needles, and more than 300 piles of human feces along the 20-mile stretch of streets and sidewalks. When a human rights organizer serving with the Coalition on Homelessness Advocacy Group was asked about the specific measures now being taken to clean up the streets of San Francisco, he said there was no clear plan with decisive goals and nothing was really in the works. In Los Angeles, 53,000 homeless people don't all want to find shelter. Some prefer to stay outside. And many of the shelter beds, believe it or not, that already exist, aren't being used. That may be because a recent KPCC investigation discovered the evidence of rats, roaches, bed bugs, and mold while looking into the conditions of some 16,600 shelter beds across the country. And even if these beds were in pristine shelters, the ratio of homeless to beds is still more than three to one. The priorities of California's elected officials is all messed up. In Los Angeles recently, instead of dealing with the homeless in constructive ways, they ordered everyone off the sidewalks around City Hall and they power washed them in order, they said, to get rid of the rats in the building. The Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors voted to restrict travel for one year to Alabama for official L.A. County business. This is because of the new abortion law that recently passed in the state. How does this affect the homeless living on the streets of Los Angeles? Well, it doesn't. Who cares? No one, I guess. My friends, this is a human tragedy of enormous proportions. And no one in California's state and local government seems to care enough to do anything serious about it. They're more concerned with the high-speed train between Los Angeles and San Francisco that is never likely to be built than in helping their own citizens who now live on the sidewalks outside their offices. The Golden State has seen better days. Although the crazy wealthy people love to give us advice on how we should live, we might find better advisors than those who make their livings in the fantasy world of Hollywood. And in the meantime, there are no solutions for the thousands of homeless now living in California. Now, I'd like to change the subject and talk to you about one of my favorite pet peeves. Can you even say that? Favorite pet peeves? Well, let's go for it. I love the English language. It's so rich and we can express so much with all the words at our command. So what bothers me? 
Well, we've talked about it before. We are no longer teaching our children English in schools. They don't read the classic literature that we studied in school. They don't learn grammar. They may or may not learn to spell. For heaven's sakes, if I asked a group of students today to diagram a sentence, if they even knew what I was talking about at all, they probably wouldn't know where to begin and might think I'm crazy to ask. Their command of the language is so limited that they have made up a whole new vocabulary to express their thoughts and feelings, but the words are a kind of a shorthand that limits what they can communicate. So here's my beef. I watch the news all the time, and when I hear so much bad grammar coming from people who are supposed to be well-educated and well-spoken, well, it hurts my ears. For example, how many times have you heard someone say, quote, it's just between him and I, unquote, or, quote, Jim and me went to the show, unquote. They're both wrong. That's bad English. But I'll bet that the guy who said that doesn't know that the words he and I are subjects and him and me are objects, and they don't go together. So the correct way to say those sentences would be, Jim and I went to the show, and it's just between him and me, not him and I. Does that sound like a thing that's just too unimportant to concern us? Maybe. But it does show a lack of education and a lack of understanding about the workings of the language they are supposed to have mastered. So let's look at some other common mistakes. In New England, some people say use when they mean the plural of you. So for example, when talking to two people, one New Englander might say, why don't yous both come over for dinner? In the South, they say y'all. And that is considered regionally acceptable. But nowhere is use a part of the English language. Use is just not the plural of you. Okay, how about just one more? This is the one that bugs me the most, by the way, partly because it's just grammatically wrong, but also because it is a mistake that is done on purpose in order to be politically correct. It's a relatively new mistake that isn't meant as a mistake, but it's just wrong. It's the use of the plural when referring to an individual in order to avoid identifying gender. Here's one example. Uh, perhaps you remember that before people were doing this, we would say, he or she said, or it's because of him or her. But here's one example, and you'll hear this all the time from the politically, and you'll hear this all the time from the politically correct crowd. You get a telephone message from someone in your office, quote, someone called you this morning, but they didn't leave a message, unquote. So what's wrong with that? Are you so used to it by now that you don't even hear it? Someone is singular, one, a single person someone, but they is plural. Now in English, the third person pronoun, singular, like he and him, are gender specific. 
In this case, he or him refers to a male. But in the plural, they or them are not gender specific. So the politically correct Americans use the plural in order not to offend anybody but an English major. Okay, here's one more item, and it comes with a question. Have you had crazy weather where you live over the last year? I've seen some really weird weather around the country and around the world, including a cyclone in India where it rained fish. A lot of records got broken, and I learned about some very strange weather phenomena. For example, I had never heard of a cyclone bomb before this year when one hit Colorado head-on. And I had never heard of a meteor tsunami on a lake until a friend of mine who lives on Lake Erie told me that they had had one this year and that it had caused enormous waves and done some real damage on the shore. Cullman, Alabama saw hailstones as big as grapefruits. One of those hailstones was measured to be more than five inches in diameter. It set a new state record. And the dramatic highs and lows and daily temperature changes left a lot of people very confused. One day, it's 60 degrees, and the next day, it doesn't go above freezing. Northern Florida had a blanket of snow and some freezing rain. In Montana, the temperature rose 82 degrees in one day. And Massachusetts saw an 80-degree day in February. I saw that once in Massachusetts. That was about 10 years ago. And I was out in my, uh, in my driveway wondering how gorgeous the weather was. It was 80 degrees, and it was December. It was fun, but it was over real fast. In 2018, we saw the coldest April in 21 years and the hottest May since Noah started keeping records in 1895. Iowa and Wisconsin suffered the coldest April on record. And then there was the flooding on the Missouri River from a combination of heavy rain and runoff from heavy snows up north swelled up the Missouri River to the extent that it created miles and miles of open water over what had recently been miles and miles of farmland in Nebraska and Iowa. A dreadful amount of livestock was lost in that flood. And corn, which had been stored in silos, absorbed the water, burst the seams of the silo, and poured out into the water. And if you see the pictures of that flood, all you see is miles of water with the tops of farmhouses and barns sticking out. It was a very sad story and the farmers in the region suffered the most. You know, all this rain, by the way, in the Midwest is playing havoc with the farmers because not only are they suffering from flooding and other things, but they are also unable to plant their corn and their soybeans and their wheat, and they are unable to harvest their fields of early crops like alfalfa, which is used to make hay to feed their livestock. This crazy weather has caused some very difficult times 
for people who work the land. It was also a very weird year for tornadoes. Tornadoes are popping up everywhere now. In Ohio, there was even a tornado in Maine last year, and I know that there have been occasional tornadoes in Massachusetts and Connecticut. Connecticut had a rash of tornadoes just last year. So what do we have in store this summer and beyond? Well, first of all, I'm not going to get sucked into into a forecast because I have no idea, not a clue. Every day is different, and every day is full of surprises. Right now, much of the country is suffering from rain that just doesn't quit, storm after storm. In fact, we've been thinking of building an ark. Anyway, my friends, this has been a crazy, crazy year for weather, and it looks like it's not going to change anytime soon. So hang on to your hat. We'll see what happens next. It's been great spending this hour with you. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope you have a great week, and I look forward to spending more time with you next week. You've been listening to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this has been The Friedman Report.